It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 96, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Diane Sukavati raises about four and a half acres of cut flowers at Jello Mold Farm in Mount Vernon, Washington. Now in their 11th year of selling flowers, Diane and Dennis Westfall have become cornerstones of the local flower movement in the Pacific Northwest. Diane co-founded the Seattle Wholesale Growers Market when she realized the need to expand her farm's reach without putting more hours into marketing and distribution. We discussed the establishment of the cooperative and its journey to self-sufficiency, including details about how the cooperative has brought on staff and set standards for its growers. Diane also digs into the details of producing cut flowers at Jello Mold Farm, where she and Dennis manage annual and perennial flowers and foliage crops. She shares her techniques and perspectives on weed control and pest control and gets into the nitty-gritty details of how they produce top quality cut flowers, including an excellent tutorial on cleaning buckets and totes. We also talk season extension in the high tunnel and forcing woody crops to flower in order to have products to sell in January. Talking to Diane about the bright colors of summer was just what I needed in these gray days of December. Hope you enjoy this episode just as much as I did. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is sponsored by Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality compost and compost based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com and by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. Gear-driven and built to last for decades of dependable service. BCSamerica.com. Diane Sukavati, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So could you set the stage for us at Jello Mode Farm, where you guys are located, what you do there, and how much of it you're doing? So we're small-scale farmers. It's my husband and I, and Andy Kirkpatrick is our other worker. So the three of us um, are year-round working full-time on this. Uh, basically, we have seven acres of land, and we farm on approximately four and a half. Um, and we're cut flower, specialty cut flower farmers. So, we well, some of the things that we grow are edible. We sell them to florists for decoration, um, and many of the things we grow are not edible. Um, we're very diversified. Um, the, we always just say we grow, we used to say we grew 150 crops, and now I think it's about 80, but nobody counts. Um, we are we sell all very locally, so pretty much everything we grow sells into Seattle market, and we're located in Mount Vernon, which is about an, we're about an hour north of Seattle, and we're located in the river bottom farmland of the Skagit River Delta. So it's like kind of a famous area for tulip production, and tulips are about the one kind of flower we don't grow. <laughs> so in in the Skagit Valley, if I'm I mean, I know you guys are right between the mountains and the ocean. If I'm standing on your farm and I, I look out, what will I see? A whole lot of big, flat farmland and some foothills along the side. Um, we're, we're at about 15 feet above sea level, and we're, I don't know, probably a 10-minute drive from seeing salt water. So we're very close to where the river meets the Puget Sound. And are you there in the Pacific Northwest surrounded by organic farmers, or is the Skagit Valley still a lot of conventional farm ground? It's both. And we're kind of lucky right where we are. We're surrounded. Our, our farm is a big rectangle that we're just right across the road from the Skagit River. So we're well, the dike is right across the road from our farm. And our, our, our piece of land is surrounded by um, uh, organic production on three sides, which is a wonderful situation for us. Still a lot of a lot of conventional potato farming, especially, and the gold production um, in the fields here. 
pretty heavy. Um, there's a lot of berry farmers here in this area, and there are like the, the, the organic farming we have going on is a combination of a few larger scale um, producers and then a lot of small scale farmers, uh, small small acreage farms as well. So you guys have four and a half acres. How long have you been farming there? You know, it's been a, it was. A, I suppose other people who have started a farm would relate to this. We didn't exactly instantly start a farm. Um, we we acquired land by mortgaging our souls to the bank in 2001. So, um, and we were we were fairly clear. Um, both of us wanted to be land stewards, so we were very clear that somewhere or another we wanted to make a, try to make a living off a small piece of ground by intensively intensively farming it. But we started out thinking we might be like uh, farmers market food farmers. We weren't sure, and we had a landscaping business that you know so we were commuting to the city to do um, kind of state gardening for it in some of those first years. While we figured things out, and we used that occupation to. I mean, it's kind of crazy, but we did gardening to raise the money to start a farm. <laughs> so I guess we're not people that take the easy path. Um, <laughs> but, um, but, um, yeah, I would say that. This is about our 11th year of actually selling product as cut flower farmers. When you made that transition to becoming cut flower farmers, how did you do that? I mean, how did you go about getting started in the business, finding markets and all of that? So it was a pretty organic process. I mean, there's been the last few years, a real upswing in um, especially cut flower farming. I think it was quite a trend and it's wonderful to see. Back uh, 10 years ago, it was fairly um, stagnant industry. Um, we were already gardeners and we're creative people. My husband and I both are um, kind of different kinds. I'm a visual artist and he's a musician and a visual artist. And so we have a kind of a thinking process that is conducive to um, renovating anything or rethinking something. So what we didn't know at the time, I think, was a great benefit to us. Um, I've always been a very um, kind of a remember plant Latin better than my best friend's name by no particular reason on my part. It's just how it works. So I have kind of a very comprehensive knowledge of plants that can grow in our region. And so then it became, well, what can we cut? You know, what could, what could go in a vase? And a lot of passionate and long-term research went in that way. So we ended up being kind of pioneers in the industry in some ways, introducing some plants that people really hadn't thought about using as cut flowers, and then also meeting you know, a wonderful group of established cut flower farmers um, and learning from them as well. So, so we always came into it without, like, with the benefit of not knowing too much. And since the market's relatively new, did you guys have a hard time breaking into it with, with your locally grown, almost organic flowers? <laughs> um, it was insanely difficult. And if we knew, I mean, if we knew more, we might have never started. Well, and we're talking about Seattle here. I mean, I wouldn't think that, I mean, you know, in some ways I can imagine like, you know, new product, that seems like a hard sell, but it's, it's Seattle, right? I mean, it's, can you get more organic than that? Yeah, that's a good point. We have, we're definitely a good place to to start something new. But the other side of that is the cup flower industry um, is its own niche within agriculture. And we, our industry got pummeled by the, um, trade agreements that started happening. And I'm not saying it's all, I don't have a comment about the overview on trade agreements, but um, certainly they, you know, the cost of labor is way cheaper in like Central America or South America where most of the flowers are grown in South America. Um, and so, I mean, it's like you're talking 120th the cost of labor. And so 
when all the tariffs went away and the, you know, it became, you know, kind of just what, you know, the stuff coming in on 7647s into Miami and distributing into all the grocery stores, it really took the bottom. Like you couldn't, like a lot of industries, like a lot of specialized uh, couple of industries, um, kind of left, like uh, carnation production went away and rose production really changed up. And so it became a situation where um, growers, local growers used to have a lot more vibrant relationships with local wholesalers of flowers. And as the um, import trade increased, I think it went, and I and the statistics are going to be general here, but it went from about 70% um, domestic to about 30% domestic in a uh, few decades. And that equated to the lo- a lot of businesses disappeared. And we in here in Seattle, um, we're just sort of situated where we've got a, kind of a double whammy because we have the general um, kind of climate of the industry that affected the whole country. And then just across the border in Canada is um, Canadian, they're, they're, they support agriculture differently in their government there. And there's a lot of greenhouse production that's got fuel subsidies and can't get all the statistics on it, but it's definitely supported industry, um, which blows across the border. The second largest flower auction in the world is actually up there just outside of Vancouver. And so in the Seattle area, a ton of Canadian product flows in um, kind of freely into Seattle. Um, and that made it kind of a, a, a desert of local producers. And a lot of, I know that so is the farmer's markets and all that sort of thing, but there's a lot of... Um, you know, there's among growers, and there's just a lot of different factors going on that are in some way or another subsidized or have a different economy to them than just trying to make a living off of a piece of land using kind of uh, straight business practices. And so uh, it just there's just a lot of barriers there. And so uh, most people are like either very diversified and growing a little bit of flowers and some vegetables too, or they're in this is the history, or they might be um, doing just one very um, specialized kind of area, um, but it's really not, not a vibrant, has not been a vibrant industry. Um, and what's really helped change that and turn it around is the, um, the bio-local movement that's happened nationally, where people are like, where do my flowers come from? And Deborah Prinzing with her work with um, for, uh, releasing the 50-mile bouquet and then following up with slow flowers and really making getting some um, kind of energy on the fact that flowers are on your table too, along with your food. And you ought to ask maybe where they came from if you're concerned about those sort of things. That has really helped us. So on a on a national level, there's been some change that helped you. What did you guys do to break into the market? Um, well, we started out. We <laughs> I call it like um, firing a shotgun, right? Where you just try everything when you're getting going. It's not a bad way of learning. You know, oh, you're not paying tuition, so you might as well try this and that and the other thing. Um, we did that with like, what can you grow? What can you grow on your piece of ground? What can you can you grow and actually sell. Um, so we started out, um, got a bucket truck together. We call it a bucket truck in our trade where you're, you're driving buckets of flowers around in, in water um, and shopping at various floor shops and um, selling out of your truck. And we started doing that, um, you know, back in 2008, 2006, 2008. And we got into some of the local farmer's markets. Um, but, um, Neither one of those two um, kind of avenues was what I would call a living, and we did not we needed to make a, a living with our farm. We couldn't afford to subsidize it um, by kind of having an outside job. We didn't have that kind of option. We were continuing to landscape, but we were trying to make this farm actually 
um, you know, it was basically kind of a creative experiment to me actually do this. And we do this, like, kind of based on some of Wendell Berry's philosophy of the kind of agronomy and economy, the idea that if you want to take care of a piece of land, you need to be able to stay on it um, with economy. So what we ended up doing um, was getting together with some other flower farmers in our region and starting a cooperative. And that is a game changer. So tell us about that cooperative and, and the process of getting it started. Well, it's kind of like starting a farm. Like if we knew what we were doing, we probably wouldn't have done it. Um, uh, it was it was basically uh, I had gotten onto um, the board, I was serving on the board of the National Association of Specially Cut Flower Growers, um, which if if, you, if anybody listening out there is like kind of a newer farmer thinking about how to kind of get get going. Uh, doing that kind of service can be really useful. You make connections and you can, you know, kind of learn a lot about how to grow things from people who've been doing it longer, certainly in the specialized industry. Um, so I I was in charge of having kind of regional meetings. And when you're in charge and you're doing all the work, you get to sometimes have some influence and setting an agenda here and there. So I said, well, let's be here. We'll have a couple speakers, but let's have, let's have one of these, what I love. I love to, the roundtable discussion. That's a good way to get in trouble. okay well let's see farmers what what do you need what's 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 working for you what is it let's hear about it and it just that conversation was so immediately went to watch because there was a pretty vibrant um growers market um, cooperative growers market in the portland area and nothing like that in seattle and there never had been and and what happened is with all the um kind of uh overseas uh market share takeover um the local growers were less valued. Even the ones who had been working for a long time and selling to wholesalers were finding themselves that the wholesalers were buying less and less, and, that, and, and they weren't as concerned about whether or not they bothered to shop with the local farmers. Um, and so they were like, so more, more established farmers were like, hey, you know, this is pretty grim. And the new growers were like, well, you know, we, we don't know how to break into this market. And, and so the word, <laughs> like, how can we crack Seattle, I believe, was the terminology that we have around that. And, and um, so we're like, well, what if we had a market kind of like Portland? Well, okay. Well, we've had, like, we happen to have, and now this theory that, you know, farmers are, you know, um, you know that now we call it ADD or ADHD, but it's really just, you don't give us riddle and give us land. I mean, people don't <laughs> sit around. Farmers don't sit around, right? If you have an idea, you better take it to execute. better execute that idea, right? Because nobody's going to do it for you. So we just had a few real go-getters in the group. I'm certainly to put myself in that category. And so we had that discussion in, the, in June of 2010, and we were incorporated as a cooperative in February of 2011. And there were 12 of us to start with. We identified ourselves as being from... Uh, four states, although it's really mainly been a Washington, Oregon um, kind of group. Um, we've had some growers from Alaska, local peonies, but it's a, kind of a minor component over the years. Um, and uh, we basically started out with a tiny bit of money that, you know, kind of we, we had, someone had a grant that they let us kind of do a little piece of in exchange for getting collecting some tuition off a class that we held, and we see got our paperwork together and we opened our, you know, we signed a lease on a, on a piece of, on a space in Seattle in 2010 or 2011. So it was still the aftermath of the 2008 economic um, bubble burst. So there was space available in South Seattle down by where the other wholesalers were. Um, and we basically just chopped up and leased that 
face up to our membership in the so that they could each sell kind of like an indoor farmer's market. We built a clear space in there and went, got basically grassroots, got ourselves going and um, started, launched ourselves on a journey that was pretty, has been pretty rewarding and epic and hardworking and everything that I think is, when I talk to now in retrospect, I talk to, we, we now have the money to pay consultants to help our co-op grow and they say, oh, your, your process is perfectly normal for the formation of a co-op. I'm like, well, okay, that's good to know. <laughs> so, yeah, we're, we're in year six right now. Um, we, uh, a couple of us farmers, I did the first one and then another grower did another one. We wrote for USDA grant funding. I wrote a multi-state uh, grant that was funded through Washington, Oregon um, Department of Agriculture, um, especially the co-op grant that is. And then um, another one of our members wrote for a value-added producer grant. And that was something like... $208,000 we got funded over a period of about three years. Um, and then this past year, we um, were grant, in 2016, we had no grant funding at all, and we have managed to be um, self-sufficient, and we're now run by staff. None of that happened quickly or easily, I should add. We didn't, I think we're on our fourth manager on this one. Awesome, and hopefully is with us for many, many decades um, because she's doing a fantastic job and we've had 100% growth of our gross revenue in the last two years. So we're benefiting from the um, from the trend for buy local floral, but also nailing our game by top quality and, and um, having a really wonderful creative customer base in Seattle. So it's a good business model. So with your with that business model, then is the wholesale growers market buying the flowers from the farmers, or are the farmers setting up? You said they're setting up individual booths in the in the space, and customers are coming to them. Can you tell us a little bit more about how that works? Yeah, it started out being individual booths, and each grower did their own transactions. And you know, of course, from the perspective of the customer, they're having to write like five checks, or you know, like everyone's got to have their own credit card, picking abilities, and all that. So. When we hired staff, we also um, uh, went through a transition where we changed up to where farmers don't leave stall space anymore. And, and uh, overhead, all the membership consigns their product to the market, and the market takes 30% for operational costs. So in that way, we simplified things. We're able to pay for our overhead. That's how we've been able to be self-sustaining uh, because we have a, oh, uh, I think our well, we're working on our operating budget for next year, and it looks like it's right around four hundred thousand dollars. So that'll raise up from somewhere. So um, it, it's a, the formula works. The more the more volume you run through the co-op, the more efficient it is, and the, you know, but the the more overhead cost it is too. So you know, kind of those finding that it's like a process, you know, of growing and and kind of achieving a kind of level of stability in the core there. I should say that that market, um, it was kind of a, 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 an act of courage for us on the board. I've been the chair of the board since the beginning. Um, it was a, very much an act of courage for us who had been selling directly to our customers to give that over to staff and to take that hit, that 30% hit. Um, and I did actually a chart that kind of shows the way our farm's income was affected by the development of the co-op. And it's very interesting because we were selling, I don't know, a little under $60,000 growth south of our farm in 2010. That was the year before the co-op started. And then we had a very big increase in sales that first, um, that in 2011, just by having exposure to so many more customers. It was much more, rather than having to drive a truck around, it was all already, you could see that the model made a lot of sense, even when we were kind of 
still wild west and we're each doing our own thing. Um, and then you get to 2012, 2013, and it starts to table off. You know, we have kind of strong growth. And then it starts to table off. And what it is is you, all that energy you're spending, each person's doing their own marketing and you're doing all, you know, you're, you're, you're having to do so much energy to, to, to get that product sold to your customer. And we're talking about the customers in the market are mainly wholesale, and excuse me, the retail florist. So there's a wholesale transaction, but on a kind of small business to small business level. And it's a really good um, fit, I think, naturally for like our size of farm. Um, but what happened, what happened was when we, when we, Went to selling um, through the through the co-op. We took a tiny hit that year, you know. But really, what happened is our sales went crazy up, almost enough to absorb that thirty percent. And then it's been uphill since then. So what's interesting about that is that we had to have some vision to understand and and get the right people hired, and you know, kind of there was some luck involved, I suppose, in all of that. Um, but what we wanted, what we what we knew is we couldn't where we were and we couldn't grow more without taking that co-op to another level and having it run by professional staff. As a co-op, how did you guys make the transition to being run by a professional staff? Because that's, I mean, that's a hard thing to do. I mean, you know, it's, it's hard enough as, as one farm to hire people and do a good job of that. And now putting people under a board and trying to satisfy the needs of all of your different members. How did that process work? Not in any kind of linear fashion. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think that value added producer grant we got was two hundred thousand dollars, and we decided as a board, and our board was always really good. I mean, it's it's not a huge board. I mean, you're talking about we've been we started out with twelve members, and we kind of gone up and down between. We've been up to fourteen and back down to twelve, and I think we're at thirteen right now, and we're about ready to add somewhere between three and five members probably next year and kind of build our membership from here because we've got we've got the kind of space in place to be able to like organize and crop coordinate and be able to make that happen in a way that um, is beneficial to everyone. Um, but it, it, in there, we just, just, the board has always been very lean and functional. We have uh, seven members on the board, five are elected farmer owners. So five of the, well, however many members we have are on the board and are farmers. And then two are board appointed industry reps. So that would be for people who understand the industry from another perspective to advise us. And they're all voting positions. Um, and we pretty much, although we have in our paperwork that we're a majority vote, kind of that's how we run, we're actually, it's consensus. We listen to each other, talk things out, and find a solution that works. And we all have, we're all kind of um, similar-sized farms, so we have similar needs. And those things tend to make sense when you look at them. When we got that grant, we decided that we had to hire um a manager. And that's a standard thing. I mean, most co-ops have a manager, so it was a natural growth step. But until that point, I was the um, de facto appointed CEO, which was, you know, I'm not trained in that, and it was getting pretty stressful um, trying to run a farm and kind of the politics. And, you know, it was just a, it was a lot to, a lot of, a lot of threads to hold on to. And, and um, you know, I, I had a mantra for myself that was just like, keep the baby alive. <laughs> it has the potential, <laughs> potential to grow later in well-trained hands if I can just keep it from dying first before we can get there. Um, so when we decided to hire, you know, the first hire, we did, we did hire a, a, um, an HR person to help us, but oh, that's a very tough thing. You're right. I mean, there's a, the criteria, we wrote a job description and we put out a call for applicants. And the first person we hired was, I would say, um, a learning experience for all of us and, um, 
I would just say that we did not end up hiring a person who was a good fit. Um, we got an HR director the first time out, and that's pretty normal, I think. Um, you know, there's a lot of criteria. We're sort of in a, uh, I guess a cooperative is a not, not-for-profit um, cooperative corporation, as I think how they describe it in, in our articles in the state of Washington, our articles of corporation. But what that, basically, we're kind of like a nonprofit in many ways, and um, so you have the need to be able to serve the, in, in, in the manager, the manager needs to be able to listen to and work with and serve the board and also help to grow this basic business and out in the regular business world. And that combination is um, not an easy fit to find. And someone who understands agriculture and the culture of farmers and the specifics, and I will say this, that floral is definitely its own specific niche within agriculture. Um, it's, you know, very, very creative. Our, our customers are very visually oriented. And so all of those things kind of need to come together. And the first manager we hired really had more of a, a kind of a top-down, uh, old-school management style, I would say. I mean, that's just my, my words for it. But um, ended up not fitting our culture very well and then not really kind of helping us move forward. So that lasted about six months. Um, and that person resigned, and then we hired a person who was radically overqualified in some ways for as an interim manager, came, a community member came forward and um, worked for us on a, a, a kind of in a stopgap major. That person was had been was a lawyer and had been um, like had among other things in his past been the deputy mayor of the city of Seattle, so definitely knew how to run budget and. Um, and really helped us out. Built us some phenomenal dashboard, like a financial dashboard, like keep saying we'll take us to another galaxy. Like we're not going to outgrow our ability to analyze our our numbers and our number of customers purchasing each week, and you know, kind of charts and graphs to kind of check out, or watch our growth, and kind of make kind of decisions um, before we have a problem and all of that stuff. So we, it it helped us very much, and it also helped because. He worked with our staff that we had. We had some great people. Um, and one person in particular who had applied originally for the uh, management job, and we had recognized that she was a gem, but didn't, she didn't really have the profit and loss experience that was needed to run a business like ours. And what happened was she ended up kind of getting herself an MBA, an informal version of an MBA from this person who stepped in as interim manager. And so that person is now our manager and, you know, kind of, had all the qualities we wanted but didn't have the training and then got it with us and then stepped into the management position. And that ended up being a fantastic fit. And she has a very um, egalitarian um, uh, management style. She's very uh, low-brow, and it works very well within our group because I, I, I kind of look at it, I have kind of in my mind that sort of a pyramid versus a round table in terms of different models of running a business. And a business like ours, which is already a cooperative, really works best when, when certain people are more important than other people. Um, there's good, strong communication within the group, and people have roles that they play. But like, for instance, me as chair of the board, I'm not more important than other board members. Um, I, I have some knowledge in my head and a particular skill set which I bring to the table, and I really have people fit into their positions in ways that, like, if you're you know, a person who's more social might be in charge of the membership committee or, you know, we kind of can identify within ourselves our strengths and weaknesses and try and plug those in. But those are, like, everybody's, everybody's strengths are working for the good of the group um, as opposed to having certain important people who sit at the top, who's at the top and have titles. Um, it's a different mentality, and it's, um, 
it's just been really conducive to, I think, the mentality of people who are in small-scale agriculture. We're not trying to take over the world, but we want to work together to hold and have a, a solid position within a world that's more and more corporatized. So it's working, and it feels very, very functional. And are the other growers in the cooperative, are they similar in size to you, or are they a range of scales? Uh, I mean, I would say that we're all small-scale agriculture. And it's an interesting question because, um, you know, people, I would say we range from half an acre to maybe 20 acres. Um, and, you know, dollar-wise, um, you know, different people are farming at different levels of intensity. I think that our farmers have all been experiencing growth within their businesses, the ones that are engaged in working with the co-op. So it's a moving target. Um, and I think we just did a really thorough survey of our membership. And I think... They were averaging forty to sixty thousand dollars a year in sales through the co-op, I think. Um, and I'd like to see that bump up. I think there's a li- there's a, li- a number that makes you a living. We'd like to see the average for our membership go up, and I think we'll work toward that as a target goal. One of the things that we've identified is that getting our growers more um, kind of business management training and record keeping and that sort of thing will help um, our growers to be more efficient and to make more money off their work. Um, so it's kind of a, you know, we can share resources like that. It's all voluntary. I mean, we've never forced anything on someone, but making re- making kind of different uh, opportunities and resources available to our growers is important to the co-op. It helps keep the pipeline full and it, you know, keeps our industry uh, in a more uh, a positive zone. You talked about how much cheaper it is to grow flowers um, in places that aren't the United States. So how how much cheaper? Is it? I mean, when when you guys are looking at, at your cost for for producing flowers versus, say, you know, somebody doing flowers in Mexico, how much difference is there? Well, you know, it's funny because right now we're, you know, there's that whole uh, kind of new, the news story about is it Carrier? Yeah, that that Trump convinced to stay in Indiana. Yeah, yeah, if that's the true story, whatever. But anyway, um, that, I heard some, a commentator talking about how well and it, here fifteen dollars an hour is the cost of the labor, and in Mexico it's ten dollars a day. I would use that measure. I think that would be probably conservative. Um, I imagine that farm workers might get paid less than factory workers, and I would imagine that the economy similar in Colombia. I know that I heard a number that was like a dollar fifty six an hour. Um, some years back, and I think that might have been kind of a number someone was bragging about as being a good number. Um, and we really don't. The thing is, it all happens under a cloak of of not knowing. You know, we don't. There's no transparency there. Um, so the, it's it's kind of an interesting thing where we want. I mean, we want um, you know really high standards of living for the people that we can see. <laughs> so, you know, it's like it's just a complex complex equation on a global scale. Um, certainly when you're talking about small-scale agriculture and being able to sell, you know, within 60 miles of your farm, um, so this, I, I kind of feel like there should be a way of doing that. And it should be a, a, a fairly, um, that working hard outside and, and gambling with Mother Nature ought to be enough obstacle. I think that a lot of my listeners would agree with that. I'd certainly agree with that. But, you know, at the same time, when you're looking at a, a 1 to 10 cost ratio difference, I mean, that's... How how are you overcoming that from a marketing perspective? Well, you cannot you cannot crack that straight up. You know that that's that's too great, and it is. And labor is your biggest cost of business. It always is. And any farmer who's listening out there, I sure hope you're costing your own labor into your equations. 
Um, that's the biggest mistake our small scale farmers make. It's like, oh, I'll just work harder and I'll make it work. Um, so what we've done is, is, it's funny because we picked the hardest, most challenging thing we could possibly do. And mainly we're making it work because not all flowers can ship. So for instance, like you have to be able to put it in a box to lie to get it out of, you know, Columbia and get it flown in. It's going to have to be able to sit dry in a box for a few days usually. So that's only certain crops that you can do that. And then you have to be able to grow it in equatorial conditions, which is all year round. Roses lend, you know, the real, the imported flowers are the ones that lend themselves well to that. Roses, carnations, chrysanthemums. I mean, that's what you see in the grocery stores. Um, and so we're looking at it. We're going, okay, in Seattle and also in amongst all across this country are creative people. Like you realize, well, and this is an interesting thing to think about too, is that women buy most flowers. Um, they buy them for their friends. Um, you know, they, uh, you know, it's turning out there's this peaks that go on at Valentine's Day and Mother's Day. Um, but it is mostly women who buy flowers for women. Um, it's like, well, those flowers are kind of boring. There are just a few kinds and they're the same all year round and there's a lot of creative people um, who might want to see, see things on a more seasonal level, more like uh, kind of a garden in a vase concept. Um, and that's really been a lot of what that, that um, you can't put dahlias in, in a dry box and ship them. So we grow a lot of dahlias. So a lot of the Things we grow are quite, and sell at the market off of our farm, but also off the other farms going into the co-op are like it, we, call, we call we call them our key crops or commodity crops in a certain way, but they're no way commodity in the way that you see in the grocery store. They're they're just things that are available at certain times of the year, and it's a very a lot of think it's parallel to um, cooking seasonally, and it's really inspired creative energy, and that's a lot of what drives our business. So you guys are competing on the selection front. Are you guys also competing on on a quality front? Yes, quality. We we just set a very very high standard for quality um, right out the gate. Um, I led that effort, and Molly has taken it. Molly Molly Sadowski is our market manager, and she's all about quality. Um, and and I, not just me, but some of our core growers, the people in the very heart of our organization, have been. Uh, we recognize that if that. Um, in our, in our, in a, because we're selling a highly perishable product, most of it's in water and shipped in water, and it, 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 our customers are they they need that product to be reliable, um, and a lot of our customers are pretty high end. You know, like their wedding budget, their budget for the wedding flowers might be you know twenty grand just for the flowers. That might be a, a kind of a medium scale um, wedding, um, and that. You know, like those kind of, you know, working with those kind of dollar amounts, they're dealing with people who have high expectations. And so we have to be able to deliver what we promise, and it has to be reliable, and it has to be high quality. Um, and we recognize that there, what we surveyed um, for us right out in Gatum, we continually hear stories about this, that um, that is the, everyone's biggest nightmare is like to go pick up your order and he didn't come in or you weren't informed or it came in and it looks like crap. And they, they, you know, they deal with a lot of stress around um, delivering um, something that's top quality, that's highly perishable. So we have built a solid business around really caring about our customers and being very careful to deliver what we promise and to deliver top quality products. And, you know, it's been a little bit challenging because, you know, how do you communicate that? you know, to other growers. I mean, I, we wrote it kind of a, I don't remember it off the top of my mind, but we had 
put right in our bylaws, you know, kind of like, you know, kind of identified the things that would not be tolerated on the market floor as, you know, like insect issues or, you know, we had a whole list of things, drooping, drooping foliage or whatever. We, we've spelled it out kind of. But having a manager who's neutral and maintaining that standard for it is so important um, to just see that it can solve a lot of issues if you've got um, one place where everyone comes where it's not being run by a farmer. Um, and that's been, that's been, I would say, uh, absolutely critical to the survival and growth of that business. And it sounds like that was something you started with. That wasn't something that you came up with after having some problems. That was something that was there when the cooperative began. Yes, I would say so. And then we all agreed upon it too. And we agreed, you know, we agreed upon those standards. Um, and yeah, we, I think that, you know, actually I haven't, our farmers have been they're really smart and they're, they're really the ones that we started with. And this is still true. Actually, we're working on getting a new generation in there. We're like, we're recognizing, okay, our farmers are, most of our farmers have been farming, you know, at least 10 years. And, you know, a lot of us are getting a little bit older, but we also know our game pretty well. And so it's been not been that hard to communicate that, but we've done a lot of teaching to our, the new people that we've brought in about, you know, what is a bunch and what standards must be expected. And, you know, what, you know, buckets should be clean and, you know, make sure, you know, like there's just a, there's a lot of, lot of um, nuance. And what's great is the co-op can communicate that unless there's someone to answer the questions and, and um, help to get things standardized. Talk to me about quality and flowers. What, I mean, you mentioned, you know, not, no insect issues, no drooping foliage. I mean, when you say no insect issues, that's a pretty hard thing to accomplish with, Certified organic practices. Um, yeah, I wouldn't say no insect issues. I mean, insect infestation, I think, was the word we used. But, okay. I mean, there, yeah, it's not like there's no insects in the market. In fact, it's still real bad for some of those critters. A lot of them are beneficial, and, you know, they end up down there in the city, and you're like, oh, then you go find an island somewhere. Um, but, and, and, and I would say also that, you know, our farmers, I mean, that original grant that I wrote got as all assessments for the Salmon Space Program. Do you know about that one? It's a third-party certification sustainable growing practices. I only know about it because I read about it on your website. So maybe you'd tell us a little bit about that. So, you know, in, in, in cut flowers, um, certified organic is a pretty high standard to meet. Um, and sometimes uh, you could talk to different growers. Some people do it. Um, but basically, uh, it's been my experience that the customers aren't looking for it in the same way that they're looking for that, that assurance in food. So when you're a small-scale farmer looking to where to put your time and money, it may or may not make sense to do that. Although, you know, kind of steps that is required to be certified organic. Um, and, but we, we always recognize that growing practices mattered. I and mean, certainly I've always had a high standard about taking care of the land. That's why we started farming to begin with and why we continue to farm. Um, and so, you know, you can say, well, okay, well, how do you farm? Well, I farm responsibly. Well, that's the first first party certification, right? Um, right. And, and so that's kind of, you know, actually it can have some cred when you actually know who you're, the farmer that you're buying from personally, personal relationships, that's a lot of, you can have trust there. Um, but we identified that it would be valuable for us to have a third party, you know, kind of certifying our farms. And so there is a program um, called Salmon Safe that's available in Washington and Oregon. I think they go up into British Columbia a little bit. Um, and they, um, and they do, I think they were doing golf courses for a while, and they do rain gardens. They do all kinds of, they're pretty creative that way in terms of uh, being integrated into urban um, gates as well. But they have a, uh, a trained 
staff that they work with who make visit farms and certify them for uh, a list of um, sustainability issues. And they look at quite a bit more than um, certified organic does. Um, they, they'll look at your water usage and your um, erosion controls and, you know, like sort of more of the, you know, your, your um, pollinator habitat, for instance, that sort of thing, which we always score very high on that one. Um, but anyway, they... Um, so they'll do a whole comprehensive farm walkthrough. It's my education base. And they're, um, they're, they're very wonderful to work with. And we got our, our farm, this, uh, the US original Southern Crawl Block grant paid for those certifications. And then most of the farmers have chosen to, to re-up. They, they, they go every three years and at a cost of about $600 a farm. And it's a much less involved process and then it's a once every three years check in rather than a you know kind of an auditing process like in that um, certified organic that gives us that you know that assurance that uh, it gives our customers an assurance that we care about sustainability issues um, and that has been a successful program for our farmers because the bar has been tied of meat as a group. So that's not just something that Jello Mold Farms doing. That's something that the Seattle Wholesale Growers Market is doing. Yeah, the individual farms within the market. Not every single farm is certified, and that's one thing I would say is you know starting this co-op, we have been about coming together um, and finding our similarities rather than making rules or um, kind of squeezing people out if they're a little bit different. So we because we need each other to survive, and and that's been a real it's a lot of, kind of guidelines rather than rules it's been you know it's voluntary programs that's been our, our way and it's been you know i think farmers are a stubborn lot and i certainly don't like anybody telling me what to do so i mean i kind of think about that like other farmers don't like that either so there's an opportunity to decide if you want to do it well i think of our original farms we i think we had a system since 12 and 11 were certified and one's an older guy that Dutch and he likes his chemicals and oh no we're not going to change him and he has beautiful product and you know we're our market's more beautiful for having his products in there and um you know that's just kind of how we are we're not we're not really militant about those things so what else goes into quality and cut flowers or at least i should say maybe what's what else is important in quality and cut flowers when it comes to the seattle wholesale growers market okay <laughs> that's a very specific question um so with cut flowers, um, stage of harvest is, is is very very important. So you have to know your crop um, because some flowers will continue to open after they're harvested. Some will look just like when you harvested them and no more. And um, so that that stage of harvest is very important. It's, it's critically important. It's a, it's a mistake that a lot of beginners make in in harvesting things when they're more in the bloom stage that you think they're pretty in, but they're actually not going to travel right and get to the. It's what are they going to look like when they get to the end user? Is the you know, question is different for each crop. Um, and then there's um, then there's a quality issue in terms of stem length. I mean, you just need to know what's the standard cut length that, that's expected for a bunch of something. Um, we have a lot of creative crops in the market, and there's there are things that flow in there. With, like, I, we have a grower growing pansies, and those are six-inch stems, and that's fine, and everybody knows what to expect there. But, you know, there's, there's the crops like dahlias and things. Well, that's a 16-inch cut is a pretty standard cut on a dahlia, and, like, that kind of that kind of knowledge within the within crops. Um, and then there's, you know, the, the like, you don't want to see visible insect damage. Um, little imperfections can be fine, you know, but sometimes little imperfections can make something more beautiful, but we don't want to something crawling with bugs um and um there's a there's a shelf life on flowers you want to you don't want to leave it out for sale longer than it's going to deliver some level of quality to the customer so our staff takes care of a lot of that kind of shrinking product if it gets too old 
um, on the floor. And I should also point out that we, I mean, the market isn't just cut flowers. a lot of different kinds of specialty foliages, and that's an area that we've really um, gained a great niche in in terms of, um, you know, it used to be Salau and Asparagus Burn and a couple of choices, and that was kind of what it was in the floral. Now we're growing, like, it's like dusty miller and raspberry foliage and a gazillion kinds of fall foliages, you know, all of them kept in. And then, and then we, well, each product has um, kind of a different, uh, we call it post-harvest um, solution. So we'll, you know, some things that can go just fine in plain water, other things benefit from a hydrating solution or a little bit of sugar, sugar solution, holding solution. So we know that about the crops, but we deliver them in clean, clean buckets and the right kind of solution to give them um, a good base life. Um, and that's, again, very big for us. Awesome. So we're going to stop there, take a break, get a word from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back. I want to talk with you more about your farm rather than just the Seattle Wholesale Growers Market. Sounds good. Perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is provided by Vermont Compost Company, makers of Fort B and Fort Light potting mixes for organic growers since 1992. Founder and owner Carl Hammer got started as an organic vegetable grower, where he learned that quality transplants really mattered and that quality transplants come from quality potting soils. Makes sense. Just like the donkey on their logo, Vermont Compost Company's potting soils aren't glitzy or glamorous. They're steadfast and consistent, stubbornly making certain that your transplants can get everything they need from a few cubic centimeters of soil. And even though it's not all about saving money, Vermont Compost's fall pre-buy program can help you get what your plants need at the best price and the best shipping options. With their full truckloads and shared truckloads program, they organize shipping to other regions in ways that sometimes gets prices down to the level you'd pay right there in the great state of Vermont. Plus, you pay a lower price for the potting soil. To get a quote from Vermont Compost, go to the ordering page on their website, submit the request to quote form. This form also adds you to their mailing list so you stay in the loop on the program. And remember, the donkeys that I mentioned earlier are the real thing. And you get a little bit of donkey manure in every patch of Vermont Compost potting soil. Feed your plants the best. VermontCompost.com Bandwidth for the show is provided by BCS America. A BCS two-wheel tractor is the only power equipment a market gardener will need with PTO-driven attachments like the rototiller, flail mower, power harrow, rotary plow, snow thrower, log splitter, and more. You name it, and you can probably run it with a versatile BCS two-wheel tractor. The first time I used a rototiller way back in 1991, it was mounted to a BCS two-wheel tractor, and it spoiled me for life. When you get behind a BCS, you can tell that it's built to the same commercial standards as four-wheel farm tractors. I've used other tillers and mowers, and I spent most of the time when I was using those thinking of how much easier it would be with a BCS. On my own farm, we went through a number of so-called solutions before we finally got smart and bought a BCS. Even though we owned a four-wheel tractor to manage our 20 acres of vegetables, the BCS tackled jobs that we couldn't do with the larger machine, from mowing steep slopes and around trees to working in our high tunnels. Check out bcsamerica.com to see the full lineup of tractors and attachments. All right, and we're back with Diane Sukavati from Jello Mold Farms out in, I think that's actually just Jello Mold Farm, not farms, out in Mount Vernon, Washington. Diane, we before we took our break, we talked a lot about the co-op. So I want to I want to turn to talk a little bit more about your farm and actually how you're doing your production on your operation. You said that you're managing eighty different crops. Yeah, don't make me count it, but that's how many line items I've gotten QuickBooks. So I think so. <laughs> <laughs> and, by the way, and, and by the way, it is um, one farm is enough. Thank you, Yellowmold Farm. <laughs> one is plenty. One's enough. You're not looking for another one these days? Pretty I, much, yeah. <laughs> so what's the season like out in the Skagit Valley? Are you guys 
planting and harvesting all year round, or is it is it a more more focused towards the summer and the fall? Uh, we have about a nine month growing season. Um, we have six months intensive and then shoulder seasons on either end of that. Um, we're always working to expand those shoulder seasons. Um, so I think just, just now we took our last batch to the market um, a couple of days ago to the co-op and we won't bring flowers in now again until probably about the third week of January or crops. We'll, we'll start bringing, we'll start in with forced cut branches and plum branches um, and kind of build on that. Um, but in our, in our climate, it just gets so, even if we have a mild winter, because our winters can vary quite a bit depending on how the Gulf stream is running and what kind of year it is. Um, but even so, it gets just, there's no daylight. So that's nothing really grows for that period of time. Um, from, you know, right about, well, it gets pretty dark starting about the end of October and doesn't really come back around until, you know, February. Things will start to grow then. Um, we do use hoop houses, um, unheated hoop houses, so we, um, especially for spring crops, um, we can bring quite a lot of, um, quite a jump on the season that way. Um, so we're, the, the first, um, we start with hellebores. Our first big crops are hellebores, and they'll come in in March or April, depending on the year. Um, and we'll, don't know, we'll kind of transition into Icelandic poppies and sweet peas in our hoop houses. And then, you know, about toward the end of May, we are harvesting uh, peonies out of the field. And then uh, moving, we have a number of perennial crops as well, and then we move into values in the high season. Um, our, our, the, the demand for a product is we have a, um, in this area, it's a big destination wedding location in the summertime through all the San Juan Islands and uh, all around our area, you know, with all, that, all the waterways in our very lovely, sort of 80 degree sunny summers. Um, we end up selling a lot of our products. So in the months of, especially August and September, July, August and September are our main sales months. You said you guys have high tunnels. How many do you have? We have four and we're putting up our fifth right now. But I was just going to say that um, we, every time we put up one more, we say that's our last one. High tunnels are kind of like that. They, they tend <laughs> yeah. to propagate. Are you just doing standard high tunnels, the you know, ground to ground? Or are you doing anything special with those because of the envi- the the non-heavy winter environment that you're in? I, I, well, I don't actually understand the relativity of that question fully. But I would say that we, I mean, we have a lot of winds here. So we just have to anchor our posts and put more work to put them up. But um, basically, we do like a 20 by, well, they're basically 20 by 100 foot footprint. And um, we we're doing eight foot tall, but actually we realized at a certain point that our sweet pea vines get 10 feet tall. And so we started the last few weeks also been 10 feet tall so that we can not lose that end of that crop when it's pushing up against the ceiling. Roll up sides for ventilation, kind of standard practices like that. Yeah, very standard. We have a lot of north-south winds right in our piece of ground. So we have them oriented that way so we can leave them open and get good ventilate, good cross ventilation. And a lot of the benefit for us is actually keeping the rains off in the late spring and into June. We have a, sometimes we get into a rainy period then and it's actually quite mild, but um, some of the flowers don't hold um, up well if they've gotten wet. And tell us a little bit about how your farm is laid out. You, with four and a half acres of ground is, I mean, it's, you guys are kind of in that weird cusp, right? You're, you're, you're not small enough to be doing kind of the JM40A style with the BCS tractor and, and a bunch of hundred foot beds all laid out perfectly. Um, but you're also not quite big enough to really do a lot of, you know, tractors and thousand foot rows. So how are you guys, how are you guys managing your crops? Well, you know, we, it's interesting. 
philosophically, I mean, we started out as pea patchers in the city. And I think in some ways we still grew, we're, we still use some of that. There's a lot to be said for intensive management of ground, you know. So um, we we have one small boat tractor. Um, we're a bit limited because the front wheels are two feet apart. Like that's the clearance space. So a lot of our roads are two feet wide. Um, and uh, we have very, very heavy weed pressure here um, because it just the ground's wet for in that mild time of year for so long that um, we do we, we use it very responsibly as responsibly as we can, but we use a lot of ground cloth that in, in the aisles to keep um, the weeds down, and we grow, um, well, we have a lot of perennial and woody crops, and we're moving all the time more into more woody crops, so that is, those are long cycle crops, so like lilac, and they're my favorites, actually, I've always loved trees and shrubs. Um, so we're, we're diversified in that kind of way, and our rows are, well, the, the piece of ground is shaped, it's, it's a big rectangle, but it, there's a swale that runs through it that before they built a dike on the Skagit River. We're on the outside bend of the river, so our soil's a little bit sandy, and so we have the swale that was carved in by the river, you know, over eons, and that makes our ground not be one big old square out there. So we, we, we farm, our, our beds are shaped around where that swale runs. Um, and we just have, we have good road access and we'll, be, we'll, we'll have, like our dahlia beds will be between 100 and 150 feet long with little side aisles so you can walk around and get them picked on both sides. And we usually just take like that, we have a pickup with a canopy and we'll just drive it out there and put 16 buckets in there and fill them up and take them to the cooler at the barn. And we're scaled, our barn, our, we have a cooler with a cool bot in it and a prep room and everything is, and then we have a box truck that will take seven um, well, cars on it, which is, you know, between five and seven thousand dollars worth of product. Um, and we'll run that truck, um, three days a week during the high season, mostly full, but we also bring the product on Wednesdays, the full truck, and then the Monday, Friday trucks will bring products from the other farms in our area down to the co-op too. So we're always sharing resources where we can. Um, but we would have to make a lot of changes if we were to scale up much from here in our high season. So what we've been doing strategically is working on filling out the shoulder seasons more when that truck's not running full, um, when our when our kind of infrastructure isn't completely used in the barn, so that um, we're just maximizing efficiency. I know I have a brain that happens to work that way, and I think a lot of farmers do. Um, if you get down to it and just make yourself do that work, it's funny how you can go, oh, huh, we could just suck it up five times. What if we paved this area right here and got a truck with a lift gate with a channel of the bucket once? things like that really pay off well it it is kind of funny how how folks should get on efficiency when you're the one lifting up the five gallon buckets full of water yes and when you're getting older too that helps that does help (laughs) yeah i wish somebody told me when i was young that i should pay more attention to that you know, because I was going to get older a lot sooner than I thought I was. Yeah, kind of like a conveyor belt, right? One of the things that you talked about was, uh, as, as an important quality element, was getting stems that are the right length. Are there things that you do out in the field to ensure that you're getting the right length stems? Yeah, and especially because we, you know, we have, well, we have three of us who've worked on this farm for 10 years, and that's great. So we've got a core crew that knows, we've got our labor and people know their areas, what they do really well. So, like, if you've been harvesting a crop long enough, you can look at it, walk up to it, close your eyes, and get it at the right length and never think about it. But it's really hard. You realize how hard that is to explain when you get someone new. And we get we do hire seasonal labor to take cover, cover kind of our peak times. And, it, you know, we also take in interns. And, you know, it can be so hard to 
to, you know, say, okay, well, it's this long. So, um, this long, if you hold your fingers in the air apart from each other, really can shift quite a lot with the brain and the passage of a day. And, you know, it's, it can be quite shocking to walk up and, oh, I left you for half an hour. Ooh. Um, and so really, like body parts make really good marker points. And I'm sure every kind of farming has these kind of things where you can go, okay, well, like I know that, you know, everybody's body's a little bit different, but you just get out a measuring stick and go, okay, well, 18 inches is, is right here on my arm, you know, where my sleeve meets my, you know, forearm or whatever. And then, and then that becomes, you know, like something that the, that the person can use as a measure until they, uh, have familiarized themselves. Um, I know Dennis uses it. He does. He gets a lot of our woody crops, and he has a major that he uses. that's like basically to his armpit. A lot of those um, soil crops. So that kind of thing can be really useful. And yes, it's, it matters a lot. Are there growing techniques that you use to make sure that you get nice, long, straight stems? Oh, absolutely. Um, and it's again, this stuff all varies from from crop to crop. So, um, for instance, like we grow a lot of foliage crops and woody foliage crops. And um, with those, we'll actually, we go through and it, we'll just go through our woody rows, the, the crops that we want to treat that way sometime during the winter or early spring. we we'll just get, you know, the version of the weed whacker. We just, actually, we don't even own the tool. We go down and do consumer rentals and rent it for the day. But we have the, the weed whacker that gets the saw blade on the end of it. And we just go through the, and just cut all of our stuff down because it, uh, to basically to like six inches above the ground, all the like nine barks and um, rad, the raspberry, even our the raspberry crops that do the fall cropping, we'll cut them all the way down and just grow them like a hay crop. And for cutting, so we want all those nice, even straight stems that shoot basically suckers is what we're producing on a lot of our foliage crops, for example. Um, yeah, and even in the um, case of a lot of the um, flower crops, you'll you know pinch them so they side branch and do a number of shoots. And then we have a whole system of um, using side rails and um, staking and, and netting so that and it varies from crop to crop so that we get straight stems. Um, although, then again, it's like the gardener, the florist wants you know, like a viney look and everything. So, as soon as you figure out how to get them nice and straight, that's when they want them to be crooked so they look homegrown, right? Or not even homegrown. Elegant and draping and fashionable. These are very sophisticated customers. Yes. Right. That's the difference between me and a floral designer. Right. I I go homegrown. They go drapey and fashionable. Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so now out out in the field for weed control in those perennial crops, what are you doing? Well, we do a fair amount of mulching. Um, although then that that when then we have our like armies of slugs we have to deal with. Um, <laughs> it's our own particular area of growing, but we. And slugs in the Pacific Northwest, because I, I grew up in Seattle, they're not like slugs here in the Midwest. No. Although we don't have, like, Japanese beetles and things. I mean, I'm not complaining. I want to make it really clear I'm not complaining. I'm really careful with groups of farmers, like, nationwide groups of farmers, like, okay, I'll keep my mouth shut, because maybe the crop didn't grow, but <laughs> we have pretty easy weather and pretty easy insect pressure compared to a lot of parts of the country. Still have our challenges, and like I said, you know, achieving photosynthesis is one of them. Um, but um, in some growing years, but uh, yeah, the slugs are um, well, they're huge and they're epic. I mean, their biomass out on our farm has got to be by the tonnage. And we, you know, there's certain times of the year when they don't matter, but right at that, right when the soil temps and things warm up, so that where they hatch and start eating, there's a point there where you can lose your crop overnight if you're not careful. So we use um, well, we keep <laughs> we keep a, 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 a half a rack of um, scale bush light out 
in cans out in the hut, out in the field. We call them slug treats. Um, so we do pick them into beer because they'll crawl out of water. And so we do a little bit of that hand-picking stuff. And then we also use Luggo, and we, you know, we just, we just have to keep on it. Um, so the mulching makes that worse because they have places to hide. But the other side of that is you, you have your, you, you know, kind of uh, freedom from weed pressure. So uh, basically we try and keep our roads clean so the weeds aren't seeding in there. Um, when it gets too ridiculous, like in a like perennial, herbaceous perennial crop, like flocks or globe thistle, that kind of thing that we'll just we'll just dig up another part and start we restart the bed in another part of the farm, fill it up and turn it over to woodies sort of lazy permaculture style. Right. <laughs> so with the woodies you're not as concerned about the about the weed growth. Exactly, because they'll shade it out. It depends on the crop, but so many times, you know, that, that what like we have a lot of horsetails because and I, I figured they were here a long time before we got here and roots are supposed to go down eleven feet. We're in sandy soil along the river. I'm I'm not gonna fight that battle. Um, so we just like, you know, if you till an area, then the foothills aren't too bad for a few years and you can keep them pulled and whatnot. And then just transition your crop along to something that's strong enough that the horsetail just acts as a ground cover and doesn't really bother the crop. Um, so it kind of lends itself to growing like lilac is a great example, you know, that lilac has no problem growing and shading out um, and keeping thin and undergrowth of perennial weeds. I'm not concerned about what the farm looks like as long as we're able to grow healthy crops and take good-looking product to market. So there's an awful lot of um, tolerance of things that aren't really harming the crop. You know, it's a little tidy out there. For your annual crops, what are you doing for weed control? Well, we till. So that helps a lot in that. Um, and then we don't do any direct seeding, and that's unusual. Um, with the combination, we use a lot of drip paper irrigation, and we have that sandy soil. So even though we have, you know, fairly a lot of water in our aquifer right underneath the farm, it's not necessarily, like we you know, can't necessarily have even moisture on the surface without doing some kind of overhead watering. So instead, what we'll do is soil block pretty much all of our crops, uh, and that helps a lot. And like, for instance, um, we grow a lot of amaranth. Um, we grow about 10 varieties of amaranth, and that's um, one that is basically a weed itself. I mean, it's cousin of pigweed um, and, and so what we'll do to um, kind of work with that is we'll soil block but we don't actually soil block them we broadcast the seed into full flat because you can basically bear root the seedlings <laughs> so we just take a sugar shaker plant the seed and then separate it out fill the ground and prep it clean and then what happens is your starts are maybe a few inches tall they've got to jump over the um, over the weeds that are going to sprout in that same bed <laughs> and then we go through once and scumble it um, just to give them that so that they can just get a head start and then they're growing uh, and they, they'll shade out everything from there and it works very well and it's like well just don't try and grow something else besides amaranth in that area because quite a healthy weed seed bed we've got out there and the way you've got your farm laid out have I mean you mentioned that in in a lot of the perennial crops you have fairly wide roadways for getting in and and doing being able to do the harvest is are the are most of your paths pretty wide you mentioned narrow beds where where you, where you got the tractors it depends on the crop um, we have we kind of have it broken up into small fields so we'll have maybe 10, 15 rows in a chunk and then a road that goes on either side so we can get access through um, and get to the ends of rows easily. Those are one that's side aisles. This is hard to explain without looking at the map. Um, so so we have good access and we can move around on the farm. But we also have to be careful here because we're quite fungal here in the Pacific Northwest. So we don't want to pack things in too tightly because you can get issues with 
um, mildews and these kind of different different fungal issues. So we want the airflow to be able to go through as well. A lot of our aisles are about three feet wide. That seems to be a standard. Sometimes what we do is make wider aisles and just do a double row. Uh, it just very much depends on the crop. And you talked about using uh, hand picking and sluggo for the slugs. What other pest challenges do you have with the, with the flower production there in the Skagit Valley? Well, I kind of think we're like the doctor office here because it's so agriculture and cultural in this valley and trips are just murder. Um, I think that, you know, like some of the other farmers in the valley, you know, grow big fields and will use ryegrass as a, as a cover crop or a, a rotation crop. And so you'll get these migrations of insects. I think that's not uncommon. Anybody that's growing in farming areas will get those kind of like, ooh, overnight. The temperature went up five degrees and all of a sudden it's like, whoa, okay. Um, so like in our dahlia crops, um, we have thrip pressure, kind of ligus, um, starting to get cucumber beetle. So those are all um, uh, kind of insects that will um, suck the, um, they'll either chew on the flower parts or suck the, the plant juice out of the flower parts and make them look all, uh, kind of not sellable. Um, so, and we, we will work with that. I try to, um, I'll very carefully, I might do a couple of Smelted sprays this season, but I'm really hesitant to use that product and I'm careful about it because I don't want to kill bees and I don't want to build a food resistance to it in the field. So a lot of what we'll do is if, it, if it, we have insects that are of a tolerable level in ter- terms of being able to produce a quality flower, but then we don't, like, it's a terrible thing where you don't want bugs crawling on, any bugs crawling on something that's going to be, like, put next to white satin in a wedding. Um, right. Kind of high, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, a lot of times, like, we have a really nice collection of, because we're, we're so careful about our um, what we put on the farm, we have a wonderful collection of beneficials. But, of course, like, you know, your your aureus bugs are, you know, the ethos rips are much more visible and, and annoying to a bride potentially than the thrips would be. So, like, okay, how do we deal with this? So, what we've come up with is we'll, we do a, um, of course, you have to know your crops, but dahlias, you can get the, a dahlia flower wet, and it won't, as long as you don't keep it wet for too long, it won't harvest the, the won't harm the quality of the, of the flower. So, we will actually dip bunches of our white dahlia. We dip all of our white dahlias in a pyganic solution in our prep room. So, we're able to use a, we don't build up a, a resistance in the field, but we're able to use a really effective blanket insect killer um, to make the product be perfect. That's a really interesting approach. I like that. No, all the time. I, mean, we, we, I think a lot, I really do believe that um, small-scale farmers especially, maybe all kinds of farmers, but especially small-scale farmers, I mean, we're so in touch with, you know, our the land makes a living for us. We need to treat it well. I think most small-scale farmers I've met are, you know, pretty careful and pretty thoughtful about their processes. Any other great tips for doing pest control and cut flowers? Oh, I think walk away when it, you know, like <laughs> get out the weed whacker. I think it's like give up at a certain point. Like a lot of times, like for instance, the, you know, because these insects pressure will come through and like a lot of times they come through in uh, waves, right? Like for instance, our, well, I don't want to keep bringing up dahlias, but I mean, well, they'll, you'll get a, a rash of aphids and you're like, oh my goodness, those are pretty bad. They don't watch them. And sometimes I just like have learned by not having enough time to deal with everything that sometimes problems will solve themselves if you give them a little bit of time. Um, so, for instance, your beneficials will follow the problem. And so kind of trying to trust in the balances and being willing to sacrifice a certain amount to learn, um, if that's possible. You know, sometimes you have to go, well, I'm going to wait and watch this. You know, that kind of thing I found to be of great benefit. Um, and also, if it's too hard to grow, don't grow it. 
That's what we just move on to the crop that wants to grow in our, you know, like, okay, we've got a problem here. Well, what it costs to fix it. A lot of times, like, for instance, a spray, whether it's an organic spray or not, it still takes time out of your schedule. And if you're a diversified small-scale farm, you don't have a lot of extra labor during some of those times of year when the insects are deciding to, you know, visit you. And so maybe it's like, well, okay, somebody else maybe has a piece of ground they can grow this better on. And that's part of the benefit of the co-op, too, and not just harping on the co-op, but really we've been able to streamline what we grow and then just grow the things that want to grow on our ground that fit in our system that we do well. And that's been really helpful. So when it gets to harvest, you you mentioned that you guys have a truck that's got a, a shade canopy on it. Yeah. I mean, that's, we don't have the kind of heat that a lot of people have, like, in the Midwest, in the, in the northeast, northwest, or in the southeast and northeast. Um, and so, you know, we, a lot of times the temps don't really go over about 80 degrees here. Sometimes we'll get a heat wave. Um, it might get to be 90 a little bit, but it's very uncommon. So we're... You know, we do want to get stuff out of the field, and even at 80 degrees, you want to get it in the cooler fairly rapidly. So you don't want to you want to make multiple trips into the into to get your product into the cooler and get it cooled off. Um, so you know, that 16 buckets, the three of us are harvesting. We can bring three, four batches in easily in a day, and so that kind of keeps it from sitting out too long in the heat. And you don't want it in the you don't want it in the sun, and you don't want it in the wind. So it's a lot of pressure to get those get that product into the cooler as soon as possible. Um, which makes it so that you don't, you know, like a, a, I wouldn't want a bigger harvesting vehicle played that way. And are you bunching things out in the field? Yeah, we do. I mean, it depends on the crop. Almost everything gets bunched in the field. Um, we um, just will have a count, and that'll be a standard count, and just cut it and bunch it. Um, and we have little twisty ties with our farm names, and that's part of our you know, kind of trademark, and we'll keep those in an apron and bunch them. Now, there's some other things that we'll will attend to in the prep room. Like, for instance, the co-op has a program where we sell volume product to grocery. And there's certain crops like dahlia, sweet peas, um, Icelandic poppies, where if we know that we're picking that crop specifically for a grocery order, we don't put our twisty tie on it. We actually have a, a co-op tag that's an elastic tag. We'll do that kind of thing in the, in the prep room or packing out those kind of special order buckets. And are you guys making bouquets or does everything go to the market as a straight bunch since you're selling it all to the co-op? For our farm, we do not make both. Okay. Some of the other farms in the co-op do make them um, and so as an individual item that they'll offer and maybe sell through the grocery. Um, this farm, I used to make bouquets for farmer's market. I'm way too creative. I don't, I, I can never discipline myself it's like two minutes. Ago. You know, like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, okay, don't try this. <laughs> too much oh, of the artist. Everyone's got to be new. Everyone's got to be new and special. I do not get you the um, efficiency you need. That's funny. I, yeah, I hadn't, I, I, you know, you'd think of an artist being a, being a benefit on a flower farm, but I guess that is a way that it would, it's not necessarily the, the best thing to bring to bear. <laughs> well, let's put it this way. It makes it really good for talking to customers and hearing their, understanding their viewpoints. And we, we can get these, and that's, that's one of the things that's quite wonderful. We still maintain that advantage of direct marketing because we still take our product down and we're still present on the market floor selling our product, especially during busy days. We're not required, but it's welcome. And the customers know the farmers. And so we get to know, like when they say, each we know what that means. You know, like that or that one says burgundy and it means dark red. That one says burgundy and it means dark wine purple. And, you know, like you get to where you kind of can interpret their uh, way of looking at the world of color um, very specifically. That's a great, being trained in, in kind of visually and artistically trained is helpful for that. 
and also being able to direct market it gives us a huge advantage over the kind of the, the much more impersonal at the other wholesalers. I know from talking to other flower growers that they place a real emphasis on having clean buckets. Oh, yeah. You're speaking my language there. Oh, yeah. Food grade clean. That's my mantra. Food grade clean. What does that mean? Uh, basically, would you eat out of it? I mean, I, I don't use bleach. We put we actually put a um, we put a hot water heater out in the prep room so that we have a bucket washing station that has a, one of those restaurant dishwasher sprayers. And we'll use phosphate-free dish soap lightly and then just hot water and we'll scrub out if there's visible, you know, kind of scum or dirt, we'll scrub that off and then you know, we can do that pretty fast. Um, and that, we, we look at it and we say, okay, if I eat out of it, I, I put flowers in it. So that restaurant style sprayer, that's the one that, that kind of got the flexible thing that comes up from the sink, goes up above your head and then comes back down and it's sort of springy and bouncy so that it holds itself, right? Yeah, it cost $330 when we didn't have it to spend, but I'm kind of a geek for gadgets, and I just went, I know we're going to want that. And it was a great, great investment. And then are you using a scrub brush or a sponge in addition to that? You know, we don't use, um, you know, the terrycloth rags. Um, some, I mean, whoever depends who's washing the buckets out there. But you know, a lot of what the actually florist gave us this trick is actually the, the round, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm talking new from the store, not used, but the round kind of toilet brush. Um, this actually gets in the corners of floral buckets really well. So it's pretty a, a pretty handy little, that, I like that particular, they call it a wand in the trade. Huh. Toilet brush. That's great. And I mean. But not the, not the, you know, there's different shapes of toilet brushes. The one that's cylindrical. Right. Yeah. Not, not the one that's designed to get up under the rim, but the one that's kind of designed to get down in the trap. Exactly. See, I do clean the bathroom sometimes, so <laughs> I know about these things. Okay, and and of course, I mean, if you're doing something like that on a on a vegetable farm, please make sure that you have that brush marked as for food grade use only, and make that really clear. Just I have to put that in as a food safety thing. So that's a really great tip. But you said you said for the corners of the flower buckets, I always think of buckets as being oh. round. Oh, you know, actually, my some of our favorite buckets are called perconas. And they're actually um, kind of Dutch invented. By the way, the Dutch have done so many innovations in the cut flower trade. I mean, it's their mainstream, one of their main industries in that country. And they are just beautiful systems and innovations people. So there's a whole uh, kind of line of buckets under the name Percona. If you were to Google it, it's P-R-O-C-O-N-A. Um, and there are certain standard sizes available in the trade. Um, they're kind of rectangular and they stack together in a beautiful way. And you know, a lot of them will take exactly 10 of a certain kind of bunch really well. And um, those buckets are, are kind of a staple in our industry. And they fit. What's beautiful about them is that you, they don't tip over when you're driving in a truck with them or if they're on a rack. Um, and they're and they they fit together in a very like kind of tight way that uh, uses space well. Um, so yeah, and even even in the round buckets, like we also use, like especially for a lot of the woody cut branches, we use the kind of standard five gallon buckets. And those ones, it's that corner, you know, it's where the um, sidewalls meet the bottom side of the bucket. That rim, that edge right there, gets you get kind of scummed up in that place you can kind of get into. And how do you train people to wash buckets quickly? I know that on my farm, watching our harvest totes was one of the slowest, most painful things for me to watch as the person who also was writing the checks for payroll. <laughs> I hear you. Um, so we have our prep room set up. I guess we built that to start with. So it's got, we've got counter space um, and we have a really beautiful old double um, 
uh, laundry sink, like one of those old ceramic ones without the salvage yard. And it's all you know, built in, so it looks like it's kind of a uh, kind of a rough style kitchen in, in our prep room. Um, and with that plumbing, we've got it where you could just put a stack of buckets on the floor. You get you've got the double big double sinks. You just start. You fill one of the buckets with water and you scrub it around. And it just you can get a real rhythm going. And there's a whole big drain rack, so it's just like boom, 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 boom. And I encourage playing music. That helps. Um, and I do it myself too. And it's just, I guess it's just because we set up the flow right in our facility, it seems to not be a problem. And of course the drain rack being important because if you stack stuff up wet and you've got a, a microfilm of water in there, that's just going to encourage any bacteria that you do have left over to start growing. Right. Just put them on there upside down. And basically in the high season, we're turning around and filling them back up as fast as we can get them washed pretty much. So there's really not an issue there, but yeah, it is nice to have that. Yeah. That, that space is, has been lovely. I mean, that was something we just, we built our barn ourselves and we thought about those spaces and we, that, that careful thought that we put into it all those years ago has really been uh, a kindness to, we gave a kindness to ourselves by taking that time and care and investing not that much money, but just a little bit of money to build it, think it out and build it correctly. One thing that you mentioned earlier that I wanted to circle back to was this idea of doing forced cuts. Um, in your in your greenhouse, can you talk a little bit more about what your what kinds of crops you're forcing and how that process works? Um, well, if I understand your question right, um, you're talking about we're talking about bringing crops sooner inside an unheated hoop house than they would come out in the field. Um, and so, basically, I mean, it's different in everybody's climate, but the the theories can be adapted anywhere. Um, basically, uh, for instance. Like right now, we have a, a little seed starting greenhouse, and that that's the only place we use a little bit of heat. And it's about a 20, 10 by 25 foot space, and that's where we have our heat mats for seed starting. And we also have we we, we actually dug out and put in a um, uh, kind of radiant floor heat in there. So we just we did it informally, but we do the te- do the text tubing and we put a little 10 gallon RV water heater. Um, would love someday to make that solar. That would actually be probably a pretty fun project to figure out. Right now, we just run it on electrical. And we, so we, we circulate water through there, and it keeps that house at a, between 50 and 60 degrees on most days that we have here. When it's down in the, in the 30s and 40s, it'll be 50s and 60s in that house. And so we, what we have right now is it's, it's uh, early December, and we have a whole house full of sweet pea and, and Icelandic poppy seedlings. And they're getting ready. They're, they're growing on. They were started from seed, and they're growing on, and they'll get planted out in January um, into the unheated hoops. And I'll watch the weather very carefully because sometimes we get a little Arctic weather comes down, and you can kind of watch it. And by the time you can look and think to the end of January, it's usually okay. And so we'll get them planted out into the into the unheated hoop houses and beds during that time. And then we can start bringing crops off of both, um, cutting off of both of those crops by about oh, mid-April, um, and then th- that season will carry on through um, until the end of June for both of those crops. And so that's, if we were to put those out in the field, we, wouldn't, we couldn't even get, the weather wouldn't allow us to put them out in the field until probably March or April, and then we wouldn't be bringing crops until June. And then when the sun comes, and those are both crops that like cool weather, so I'll come and buy them by midsummer anyway. So it allows us. We have something to sell in volume, get the quality crop in that kind of April, May, June period of time. And you had mentioned that that 
you're going to be having stuff to sell again to the co-op here in in mid or late January, I think. Yeah, that would be a lot of, there's a lot of spring blooming woody uh, branches that are really wonderful crops. I mean, lilac is, of course, going to be one of the most well-known ones. Um, but we'll start with like, uh, the, actually the Asian plum trees. Um, that we have a whole row of them planted way close, too close together that we can keep coppice in. I wouldn't work those. So I'll put, you know, pull like hundreds of bunches out of there of, um, of blooming buds. And if you start to cut them, in our climate anyway, if you start to cut them by about the third week of January, you can force them in water in a warm room and they'll come open. So we can sell those through like late February and, and through March. Um, and that's it. And, and, then, and then we also have hellebore, hellebore's orientalis, um, which are a wonderful early season crop um, that like our climate. Um, and then we'll move into um, some of the other, like the spireas. Um, there's a whole, there's a whole DCS, wedges. There's a whole bunch of those. They're basically gardener uh, plants, and, and they have different base lives. And we just know to tell our customers because many things, if they have a three or four day base life, if they were growing, we can get them to market, keep that cold chain going, and the customer can buy it and use it for an event, and that works out really well. So with that, Diane, it's time for us to turn to our lightning round. So. I'd like to start with what's your favorite tool on the farm? I think it's the soil blocker. And I think it's because, you know, we're yellow mold farm and I think that the blue molding tendency is already in my, my blood. But I just happen to love the way that, especially the two inch block, which you could have a way to like use it really quickly in flats, get a flat up of 50. So we've got a nice even number for doing our seeding. And what I love about it the most is on a farm like ours, we're, um, so we, we have limited labor and, you know, stuff happens and the weather throws you for a curve or whatever. And the way that the soil blocks work, the roots don't circle like in a plug tray. They, they root through naturally by air at the edge of the block. And so you can get away with a couple extra weeks of time in there before you get a crop in the ground without sending um, it. Are you guys mixing your own soil or are you buying that in for the soil blocks? We we enhance, we buy a basic mix, you know, it's peat based, and I don't love that. It's the only reason why I love growing more and more perennial woody crops because we're not in that cycle. But we do buy in a peat based um, mix that, that's got this pH balance, then we add our own organic nutrients and, and comp- compost to that. And that's what we use. You mentioned that, that you guys had to learn a lot of growing crops yourself, figuring, figuring out how to do the production on your own. What resources do you turn to when you're starting that process of bringing a new crop into kind of commercial status at Jello Mold Farm? Um, we'll start by kind of go online and see what I can find out Googling. <laughs> and I have some books that I happen to love that are, um, you know, really more especially cut crops. And I'll talk to other growers. Um, and if it's something that we haven't seen growing already, I'll um, just start trialing it and then take it from there. Any books in particular that you recommend or particular websites that are especially important to you? Yeah, there's a book called Woody Cut Stems for Growers and Florists. I, it may be out of print, but I think they're going to bring it back in again. It's by Lane Greer and John M. Dole. It's a Bible for me. I just absolutely love that um, book. It's, it's got full of great technical information. Um, there's another one called Specialty Cut Flowers by um, Armitage and Lauschman. That's really good. Both of those, I think both those resources are available through the Association of Specialty Cut Flower Growers. When they, and they have a lot of great resources, when you're, especially when you're starting out as a grower. It's pretty helpful. Where did your farm name come from, Jello Mold Farm? Basically, 
I lived in a building with a bunch of other artists in Seattle, and we were the, the part of town we lived in was getting gentrified because you know Seattle's a boom and bust town, and you having grown up there and all that. Um, and so, at a certain point in this building that we lived in was in Belltown, which is about five blocks north of the Pike Place Market. And it's in the early 90s, and um, we our building was kind of tawdry, and they were putting up all these condos and you know, property owners to another property owner says, hey, that place is looking a little shabby. And we basically had a deal where we got cheap rent for occupying the space so they were ready to do something with the building, with the land. And so... They said, oh, yeah, I had to paint the building. Like, okay. So we sit down and realize we're going to argue all day about what color we want to paint it. So two people just went <laughs> off and picked the colors, came back, it was purple and lime green. Okay. So fluorescent purple and lime green. We're like, oh, okay, right, that's never going to fly. But a real estate guy said, okay, painted the purple and lime green. I didn't think Anyway, so we painted this building purple and lime green, and we lived well, like, I lived in downstairs in one of the storefronts. And I'm like, hmm, this place is starting to look fancy, but I don't think we're done yet. So I just started putting a bunch of jello molds on the outside of it to make it even fancier. And we got, there was a, there was a kind of the grunge scene in Seattle. And, and there's a building, there's a restaurant in the building where all the rock stars were hanging out. And had a little donation box for jello molds. And so those thrift stores, they put 500 of them up on the building. It did a really nice job of it. Made them up real pretty. And like embroidery kind of. And it turned into a landmark and that we were about to come by and see it and kind of realize, oh, huh. I could stop making all this big, messy political art and make a difference and catching people in a different, more, kind of a more playful way. And it changed my trajectory. So went from there to starting my gardening business. I just named it Jello Mold Landscape and kind of took off from there and met Dennis somewhere along the way, and when we went to start the farm, I said, Dennis, what should we call it? And he said, oh, I think Delamold is a pretty good name. So, okay, good. Let's get me with that. So, that's how it happened. It's certainly catchy. I like it. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's, it's definitely uh, memorable. I mean, that's something, and, and there's not a lot of other names like it. So, that's worth it. And Diane, finally, if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? You know, I thought, because I knew primarily that question, I thought I wouldn't tell myself a darn thing. Because if I knew how hard that path was going to be, I probably never would have gotten going on it. And yet it has been so rewarding. And we have found our way. So I think in a way, not knowing too much and then just being dedicated and diligent to learning is a pretty great way to dive into it. Um, So, yeah, I think a lot of times if you know too much, you just won't try things. And sometimes the best solutions come out of um, the unknown place. I love it. Thank you so much, Diane, for being on the show today. Oh, it's been a pleasure. It's been, I really appreciate how professional you are and you're, you're, you're uh, very easy to talk with. Well, thank you. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 96 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast. And you can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Jello. J-E-L-L-O. Transcripts for this episode are brought to you by Earth Tools, offering the most complete selection of walk-behind farming equipment and high-quality garden tools in North America, earthtools.com. And by Growing for Market. Get 20% off your subscription with the code PODCAST at checkout. You can get the show notes for every Farmer to Farmer podcast right in your email inbox by signing up for my newsletter at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. I'd also encourage you to head on over to iTunes and leave us a review if you enjoy the show, or talk to us in the show notes, or share our episodes on Facebook. Facebook, we're at Purple Pitchfork on 
Facebook. You can support the show by going to farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate. I'm working to make the best farming podcast in the world, and you can help. Thank you. Finally, please let me know who you would like to hear from on the show through the suggestions form at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. I'll do my best to get them on the show. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running. Thank you.